Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Hormonal Mama podcast. I am your host, as always, Kara Drescher. Now, today on the show, I have the incredible Megan McLaren, registered social worker and life coach. Now, Megan specializes in helping women and mothers create a life of authentic joy. Megan herself experienced the great struggle of postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, and she's sharing her personal story so that you know that you're not alone. You can get through this, and she is here to help you. This is part of what Megan does, helps women with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety through her own experience. It's an incredible story, and the work that she does is equally incredible. So sit back, relax, stay tuned, and I'll be right back. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. I am psyched to have you here with me today. Oh my gosh, the pleasure is mine. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is so much my pleasure, especially since we've been waiting months to do this because I've had to cancel on you so many times. <laughs> That's life okay. Is <laughs> this is the time. I told you we're going to have a great conversation. I'm so excited. We really are. I'm excited. There's so many things to talk about, but in addition, you just have such a fun personality. So it's such a fun experience chatting with you anyway. And uh-huh. I'm just, I'm psyched to just dive in and hear all about you, your story, what brought you here, where you're headed and just so much. So Absolutely. if you're ready, let's, let's get into it. Let's, let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> so I really thought long and hard about where I want to start with our conversation. And I think, I think a good place to start is to kind of start at the beginning because you have this background as a social worker and as a coach. And Mm -hmm. I I see that so often. It's so incredible to me that people who start off in social work or psychology or counseling or something like that, and then over the years, build on it and become a coach. And it's really cool to me because I'm, this sounds obnoxious, but I'm like the world's biggest advocate of mental health. I always have been, I've gone to a lot of therapy and counseling throughout my life for various things. And I think it's just life altering and life changing and life saving in so many cases. And so I want to hear about it. I want to hear kind of where your interest in social work, social work came from your interest in coaching. I know there's a lot to talk about. So let's just, there is, tell me about it. (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me. Let's get back to the basics. Yeah. So let's do it. You know, I got into social work because my mom was in social work. So my mom had a long career. She's retired now in mental health and addictions. And so I got into social work um, thinking that I actually wanted to work for children and family services. And I did work there for a little bit, but then saw that that wasn't quite for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so fast forward almost nine years later, I've been working within primary care here in Canada. So I work with a physician or a team of physicians and then make recommendations to support the population here with their mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And coaching came about so serendipitously. I mean, I had had a lot of people kind of asking me to, or encouraging me to open up my own private practice, but it never quite felt right. Something Mm -hmm. was just not jiving along the way. (laughs) Um, And I had a friend who was starting his own coaching business, or he's still doing it, but he's doing recovery coaching. He kept encouraging me. And so 
um, I definitely wanted to, to try, but I thought I would just do a bit of soft landing, you know, not jump in right away, but kind of see what the world had for me. And so I kept coaching people in the same style in which I was doing in my, in my nine to five, which was, you know, career coaching and relationship coaching and supporting them with their mental health and finding balance. Um, But what I love about coaching is that I really feel like there's no power differential in coaching. You know, I'm just walking alongside that person in their journey and I'm helping them to build upon skills that they may not even know they have or uncover things in them that they don't know that they have. I'm really not dictating to them. You know, I love when my clients come back to me and they say, like, oh, thank you so much. You've done so much for me. And I'm like, ah, no, no, like, <laughs> it was you that did totally. it. You know, you're the one doing the work. You're the one taking everything that we talk about and implementing it and pulling yourself out of bed and doing all those steps that we talked about. I'm here alongside you, you know, cheering you on. And that's really what I love about, about coaching. Because like I said, you know, I have a bit of that power differential in my nine to five, and it's always felt a bit uneasy for me because, yeah. you know, I myself have struggled with my own mental health. I in no way, shape or form that think that there's, you know, a title behind my name, like registered social worker that I'm any better than somebody else. And so right. this type of space, I don't show up as a social worker, really. I just show up as me. Yeah. Um, and if the conversation takes us there where I share a little bit about my own personal journey, because a lot of people have heard me talk about it, then that's fantastic. But it's not about my education that's bringing us together. Right. Oh, I love that. And that's so true. You know, <laughs> I, I really like that you're talking about that power differential, because that is really important to keep in mind. And I think that that's something that is so beautiful about being a coach. I completely agree with you. It's walking alongside of someone and helping them discover themselves mm-hmm. and learn more about themselves. And, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm taking tons of notes. I'm a note taker. I love it. <laughs> I can't help myself. I always say, if you see my screen shaking like this, oh, it's because I'm taking notes because I write really hard. <laughs> but I wrote down what you said, that you help people to build upon skills they might not know that they already have. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful way to look at that because Mm. we, you know, we, we kind of all have these different skills that we use throughout our lives and we don't always realize that we have these skills. We might not use them in every area of our life, which is sometimes I think why we don't even realize we already have that skill because we're using it in a different way. So I just think that's super cool. And, and that makes me really excited to hear you talking about it in the way that you're talking about it. You know, you're brought together with someone for a reason more than your education. It's, 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 it's who you are and how you connect with someone. And that, that to me is what makes a coach so special is, you know, coaches, we're not all right for everybody, but for the people Mm -hmm. that we're right for, I mean, ultimately it's life-changing for both parties. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in my nine to five, you know, I see a lot of clients with mental health issues, like depression being a primary one. And I always tell them that the opposite of depression is connection. Mm -hmm. And that same style of connection that I have with my clients when I do coaching is what brings them to me because a lot of the times they're coming to me because yeah, they've heard me on a podcast or they've seen me on Instagram talking about my story, but something in that story resonates with them. It doesn't have to be totally parallel, but there's pieces of it where they just want to talk to somebody that gets it. Yes. (laughs) Um, And it's not because, you know, I, 
I know better because I've been through it or anything like that. But there's a different style of connection when you remove, again, that power differential and you're talking to somebody who still has some tools and some teachings to be able to draw things out of you mm-hmm. that, like I said, maybe have been there, but they've forgotten about or maybe they don't even know they have. Um, and that's where like this huge transformative journey starts for other people. And like, holy man, I am so privileged to get to watch that. Yes. So privileged. It's yeah. So incredible. That's yeah. so incredible. Something that you said, I, I, I wanted to, to make sure to talk about this because I think it's super important. You said something um, about mental health a, a mm-hmm. minute or two ago about your own journey with yeah. that. And I want to kind of expand on that because like me, you're a mom of twins which yes. is a very unique experience in life, as we were talking about before we started recording. Um, and you had mentioned that you experienced postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And mm-hmm. these are two topics that I think, yeah, I mean, I say this all the time. They're not talked about enough, even though they're talked about more now, I feel like, than they ever have been. And it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so incredibly important. I, I said before, mental health, is, is huge. It's, it's a part of your life. And when your mental health isn't at its best, when you're going through something like postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, it's so complicated. It's so difficult. And if you aren't finding people who can relate, who can help you, it, you almost feel like you sink deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I would love to hear your experience with this because man, it, it's, it's so incredible to feel not alone. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. You know, my journey with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety really like came out of left field, which I think it does for a lot of people. Um, I had a really great pregnancy, even though it was hard being a twin pregnancy and a high risk pregnancy. I was like, on top of the world, my whole pregnancy, I was so elated to be pregnant and I'd waited my whole life to be pregnant. Um, and I've always wanted to be a mom. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately my girls came via emergency C-section, which was not planned. Yeah. And then they were whisked off to the NICU. I didn't get to see them or touch them. I didn't even know what Mm. they looked like. One of my daughters, they did say like, oh, mom, look to the right. And I tried to get a glimpse of her, but one I didn't even get to see because she was um, having breathing difficulties. And then, you know, I was taken to recovery and they were taken off to the NICU and I didn't see them for hours and hours and hours. And so that was really, really hard for me. And even even the few short hours that that was going on, I already could feel like a switch was turned off and I was slipping down. Yeah. I was like, this is not good. Right. <laughs> but I really hoped that it was just kind of circumstantial because of the way they came into the world. But a lot of things happened after that. You know, I just didn't get the proper support that I needed in the hospital or that I had hoped for. And Given my educational background, I promised myself that if anything should go awry, that I would be an advocate for myself. And you know what? I was like, I was telling the doctors, telling the nurses who were in my room probably every hour, like, I am not doing well. I am, this is not me. I am not doing well. I am not okay. And everybody kept brushing it off and saying like, oh, this is just like normal. Mm -hmm. And then it was, oh, this is just baby blues. And I just kept getting worse to the point where I didn't want to go home because I was like, I am not okay. 
And so I was sent home, unfortunately, without my daughters and they stayed in the NICU and I continued to decline um, to the point where I was becoming like hyper fixated on everything that had to do with them. That's where the anxiety kind of took over and really rigid in the way that their schedules were being done and their diaper changes and their feeding. And I didn't want anyone else to touch them, Mm -hmm. but me. And I was writing everything down, even when they came home and I never slept. (laughs) Good Lord. I was so lucky to have my mom here and I had help, but I still never slept to the point where I was in their nursery one. I don't even know if it was night or morning, honestly, but I came out and I said to my mom, I think I'm actually having a psychotic break. And my mom was like, what are you talking about? I said, well, the walls are like breathing with me. And I was seeing squiggly lines and she just said like Megan you're tired you have to sleep I hadn't slept in like 56 hours at that time but I couldn't my anxiety was so high I could not take my eyes off of them or the monitor for a minute and unfortunately that went on for a year because the more that people dismissed me even though I was reaching out for help you know I went to my my checkup with my OB and I said like I'm not doing well this was like when the girls were two months And I was dismissed again. And I just felt like I couldn't ask for help anymore. It was already hard enough for me to ask for help because I'm a very type A personality. Mm -hmm. You know, I have it all together. I've always been kind of all together my whole life. And now I was unraveling and I was trying so hard to say that I wasn't okay and nobody was listening. So I just kind of internalized it and thought, I guess something's wrong with me that I just can't get it together. So I said, like, I just have to figure this out. But of course, you know, it got worse and worse. And then my postpartum anxiety kind of turned into postpartum rage or not kind of, I shouldn't use that soft language, but it did turn into postpartum rage. Mm. And around their first birthday, I just, I reflected on the year as we kind of do as mothers when our Mm -hmm. babies are turning one. Yes. And there was not a lot of joy in that year. And it was really sad for me, you know, even now, like my chest hurts talking about it because I waited my whole life for this and I was riddled with anxiety and crying every day and had no relationship with my husband because I was so angry at everyone. And my intrusive thoughts were so bad that I didn't even want to walk down the hallway because I was worried that I might drop my baby over the banister and I just couldn't sit with that that this had gone on for that long that it had stolen a whole year of my time with my children so I said like I have I have to get help I have to try again and so I reached out to a psychologist who specialized in postpartum depression so I really felt like that way I wouldn't be dismissed Mm -hmm. and I just started that journey to heal that's incredible. That was you know, a long-winded answer. Sorry, but no. That's, you know what? Though that's the best kind of answer because I'll tell you exactly why. Because I find with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, like you said, it gets dismissed. Nobody wants to admit that someone they love is struggling. I don't know why that is, I, honestly, because I'm the first person to say you should go get checked out. And in like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I might be a little hyper about that, you know, like, oh, okay, so <laughs> you should go check it out. But I'm also, I, I've seen what post, postpartum depression can do and what it takes from people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so unfair that it, that, that concerns are dismissed the way they are, because it doesn't just happen in Canada. It happens here in the United States. 
I mean, our healthcare system is, uh, I think everybody yeah. in the world knows our healthcare system is mm-hmm. messed up, but it's not just the healthcare system. It's a lack of knowledge, understanding. It's a lack of empathy, I feel like in a lot of cases yeah. and, and listening, like you said, no one was listening to you. You're reaching out mm-hmm. because, you know, everyone's experience with postpartum depression is different, right? It, it's mm-hmm. never the same for everyone. And something that I experienced just because I want to relate to this a little bit. I went through clinical depression when I was about 21 and it was severe. I, I stopped being, I, I literally slept all day and lied to everybody I knew and told them I was going to work or going to school or what, I don't even remember what I was doing at the time, mm-hmm. but really I had dropped out of school, but I, I just didn't tell anyone. And I would sleep all day and I would be up all night, just laying in bed, watching infomercials that I didn't care about. And it was a very dark, dark, dark time. Mm-hmm. I finally sought help and it was great. Now that, that was 20, 20 plus years ago now. So looking back on it, when I was pregnant, I'm sorry, before I got pregnant, I had been going through infertility and I was seeing a counselor because I was verging on depression again. And I, and I know what depression feels like for me and we're Mm -hmm. all different. And I remember saying to her, I'm, I think when I found out I was pregnant and and it was like, whoa, and I went through a lot of trauma in the beginning of my pregnancy, I, I had three babies and I lost one of them in nine weeks into the pregnancy, all of a sudden I wasn't pregnant with triplets anymore. I was pregnant with twins and there was, you know, a lot of stuff going on. And I said to my counselor, I'm very concerned about postpartum depression. And she said something to me that took me pretty much my entire pregnancy to realize she really emphasized postpartum depression is not like typical depression. It's different. It's a bit more complicated and it feels different. And Mm -hmm. Something that I didn't realize until I'd say about a week after I gave birth, because like you, I had an unplanned emergency C-section, <laughs> totally not prepared for that. And my kids were whisked off to the NICU. In my case, I got to see them each for about two seconds before they took them away. And there are other things happening and it was all crazy, but I went to see my counselor. I think it was the week that I was discharged. And I told her again, I'm a mess. I'm crying every five seconds. I don't get to see my babies. I'm having trouble with breastfeeding. Everything is horrible. Little did I know I'd be diagnosed with low milk supply and it was a whole thing in itself. Mm -hmm. And she said the same thing. She'd reminded me that she said the same things before. And she said, you're in the first few weeks. We're going to keep a close eye on this. We're going to keep talking. We're going to, I'm going to have you keep reassessing, but don't worry that you've been through depression before. And that, cause I kept thinking, oh, I've been through depression. I'm at high risk for postpartum depression. And she just kept mm-hmm. saying, we're going to keep talking about this. And in my case, I didn't end up experiencing postpartum depression. Again, it was postpartum anxiety because anxiety, hello, I live anxiety all the time, <laughs> but it was just something really interesting to me to, to kind of think about is it is different. It's so different because mm-hmm. it's a specific word it. It's a specific thing, yet it affects everybody in different ways. I had a friend who experienced postpartum depression and she didn't know what was going on because no one ever told her that sometimes with postpartum depression, what's happening, what you're feeling are negative thoughts towards your baby. 
Mm-hmm. She didn't know that. So she didn't think it was postpartum depression. She thought something was wrong with her in a completely mm-hmm. different way. Yeah. So she finally, someone said to her, a close friend, you need to go to the doctor. And the doctor said, this is actually a typical symptom of postpartum depression. Let's look at the bigger picture. Let's look at everything. Mm-hmm. And then she got that diagnosis. And I, when she told me the story, like a year or so later, I thought to myself, man, no one educates anyone about this. Nobody yeah. knows the signs. Nobody knows what to think about. And in your case, you are reaching out for help. You are trying to get people to listen to you and you continually get dismissed Mm -hmm. and you get to a point where you're like, I can't keep doing this. Yeah. It was exhausting. And I think, you know, like they're so focused on, do you want to hurt your baby? And I never, I never ever had thoughts of wanting to hurt my baby and or babies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I did have thoughts of wanting to hurt myself. And I said that to them. I said, I have thoughts of walking into traffic and they were like, but you don't want to hurt your baby. Okay. We're good. Like, <laughs> okay. Fuck, That's okay. mind boggling to like, me. Okay. Like, so, <sighs> I mean, as somebody who already has a hard time acknowledging if I'm not doing well or ever asking for help, there's kind of like so many, so many shots you can take right before yes. you're like, okay, like clearly I'm just not strong enough and I need to pull up my bootstraps like society says and just kind of pull it together and so that's that's what I did but the reason why I want to tell my story is because to a lot of people my life did not look like postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety or because what society thought that looked like because I was so anxious that my daughters ate every three hours and my daughters napped every 90 minutes and my daughters were bathed every night in clean clothes with clean sheets and went for a walk every day and my house was immaculate and I was cleaning baseboards meanwhile I was withering away to like 130 pounds and Mm. so when people came to my house and I live I live in a big house they were like, oh my God, like you look amazing. Cause of course I had lost all the cold baby mm-hmm. weight and my house was immaculate and I'm a mother of four children and I'm looking at them pretty much dead inside. Like you think this is amazing, right? right. But uh. that's what it, that's what amazing looks like to society. Right. Yes. I was quote yes. skinny again. My house was clean. My kids look perfect with bows in their hair. But God forbid my husband should be the one to put the bow in their hair Mm -hmm. or God forbid they ate at three hours and five minutes. I would go into a rage if my husband was five minutes late with their bottle. Like that is postpartum anxiety. And so let's talk about that. It's not just, you know, neglecting your baby because you're so depressed or you can't get out of bed like yes of course those are symptoms too but it's not this cookie cutter version of depression and anxiety it looks different for everybody so if I'm saying to a medical professional and I know myself best that this is not me and I am not okay you need to listen to that yes I tell my clients every single day you know here's my clinical impression but you know yourself best you tell me how you feel And sometimes they say yes, or sometimes they say no. But by me telling them that 
I am not the one with the answer and they know themselves best, that opens the gate for them to feel like they can actually advocate for themselves. Yes. But everybody kept trying to tell me that they knew me best. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. That's are you infuriating. Kidding me? I'm telling you that I am not okay. It must be so weird to look back on it now. You know what I mean? To look back on it now and be like, did I really go through all of that? And just continually people are thinking, I, I know I, yeah. you know, I have the training. This is what this looks like. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. what is, what is this world? Oh yeah. Or even, you know, it's not like I remember because my husband and my mom were constantly telling me, you know, like you should get some help but I was a force to be reckoned with. That was a postpartum rage side of it, where it was yeah. like, you don't tell me anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they would exactly. kind of gently try and support me. And I remember going to my daughter's first immunization and my husband, like probably praying that I wasn't going to lose it, but he's like, I, you know, Megan's having a hard time. And I'm looking at him, like, say another word and I will cut you. Yes, <laughs> yes. You're so going to be really sorry yeah, soon. Dude. Gonna be sorry. <laughs> but they did screen me, you know, do their little questionnaire. And of course I like scored off the Richter scale, but that was it. It was like, oh yeah, you, you scored pretty high. And I'm looking at her like, uh-huh. Like, I don't need to answer your questionnaire to know that. But again, what are you going to do with that information? Nothing. Exactly. It was just a, it was just that I ticked a certain box and then they sent me on my way. So nothing changed from that. Yeah. That's so frustrating. You know, it it just always blows my mind as something so important as being in that postpartum period. And when I say postpartum period, I'm not specifically talking about postpartum depression, because for me, when I say postpartum, I'm not usually talking about postpartum depression. I add the word depression on the end mm-hmm. because I think that it's an important distinction to know, like this is a specific thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a generalization. That's just me though. I'm very particular about that. But I think being in that postpartum period, which I define as the minute your child or children is slash are born mm-hmm. until at least a year after, mm-hmm. it's a very regardless of what you are going through, it's a very, um, what's the right word, complicated, vulnerable, difficult time in life. Oh, absolutely. And I just, I just feel completely baffled by society. And I mean, in general, you know, I'm not just talking about, you know, what country you live in. It, the whole world is this bizarre society of like, moms figure it out. And it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, we we're forced yeah. to, we don't really have a choice, but, but where's, where's the support? Where's the, the guidance, in my opinion, when you're pregnant to know what, what, what to, so easy to say what to expect, what to look for, what doesn't feel right. But really it's, if you know yourself and things mm-hmm. don't feel right, you know, that yeah. that's your key because you know, there, there's, there's so much information out there about the traditional or typical signs, but like mm-hmm. you said, it didn't look like that for you. And like mm-hmm. we said, it doesn't look the same for everybody. It looks different from person to person. Oh my goodness. I could talk about this for like a week straight and make people oh, I insane, know. I know, but it just infuriates like, me. Irregardless of, you know, their birth. So that was one factor. Then, you know, I've had multiples. That's another factor. Mm-hmm. 
Then there's the whole factor of society thinking that, yeah, as mothers, we should just figure it out or we should just know what to do with these new little people that we've brought Mm -hmm. into the world because nobody normalizes that we shouldn't actually just know. And there is a very long period, even now I'm two and a half years in Mm -hmm. where I'm still getting to know the nuances of my children and what they need and how to interact with them. But that pressure that I felt as a new mother to know what my baby needed. And then when I couldn't figure it out, that inner dialogue of being a failure and not being good at this. And why couldn't I figure it out? And why couldn't I make them stop crying? I'm their mother. I should be able to make Mm -hmm. them stop because everybody was telling me that I should be able to make it stop. Just magnified everything. So if you ever come onto my social media, you'll hear me every day talking about all my quote failures, which aren't failures, but they're me talking about whatever went wrong that day to normalize the fact that I'm a human being. Like, no, let's make I'm, that clear. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not super mom, you know, I'm doing my best. And sometimes my best still doesn't fix the situation at hand. And that's okay. Cause I'm a human being. Yes. Like, so glad you I have to that. have grace for myself. If I'm ever going to expect society to have grace for me. Totally. And that was like the biggest part of my journey was practicing grace. Oh, and, and that's (laughs) right. Well, and and that's exactly it. (laughs) That's exactly it. And that's something that I think so many of us struggle with and we don't realize it. That's the other Mm -hmm. part of it is not knowing like, man, it's a shame how much you have to advocate for yourself because it feels, and sometimes really is because no one else will. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, well, I think advocating for yourself in any situation is important. It's just, Uh, it was going to sound weird. Maybe. I don't know. I always think everything I say sounds weird. So I don't know, but (laughs) I think it's unfair how much we have to advocate for ourselves because sometimes you can't, especially in that situation when it's that dire, you just can't like, like your experience, you tried to, and then you couldn't Mm -hmm. anymore. You just couldn't. And it's like, I I know the medical system you know, and I know the lingo and I know the health literacy and I kind of know the right things to say. And that still wasn't good enough. So imagine people who are, yeah, like unfamiliar with the hospital or unfamiliar with the health system or are newcomers like, or have a language barrier. Like, yes, it's amazing that with for me and my education and the way that I have been such a strong advocate for other people. And I still couldn't get that done for myself. That's what makes me talk about it now. I'm so glad that you do. (laughs) I really am. I mean, it still makes me uncomfortable sometimes because I still hold a little bit of shame around it. You know, even though I've done so much work to let go of that shame and to really reframe it for myself and not see it as a source of weakness, it's still not what I wanted. Exactly. It's still not the story that I hoped to be telling. I never, mm. you know, wanted this kind of life or path for myself, but here I am. And so I am doing my best to make the best of it and to support other people and have somebody listen and know or learn a little bit different because on paper, I did everything I was supposed to do on paper. I took all the prenatal classes. I took what to expect when you're expecting multiples and you know, I did everything and I still wound up there. 
because nobody can prepare you for that type of trauma, Mm -mm. which you get from having an emergency C-section and not even knowing what your children look like. And that's grief. That's what that is. And so when people try to understand what I'm going through, I'm going through at the cycle. And if anyone's ever lost a loved one, it's about, it's the same thing because I lost an experience. I lost moments of my children's first year because of the way I was treated when they were born, because they were taken from me, because I was put at the other end of the hospital when my babies were in the NICU and nobody would take me to see them. And I was hobbling down the hall when I shouldn't even have been walking to try and get to them. And I was asked to help me breastfeed and asking people to help me pump and nobody had the time to help me. I couldn't breastfeed and you know, those are all moments that I grieve because I wanted that experience with my children. And so when people hear that term and they think, well, grief, your, your babies didn't die. And people love to tell me that I should be thankful that they're healthy. And of course I am, but that's not what I wanted. You know, I wanted skin to skin and I wanted to feed them by myself. And I know here we go. No, because I mean, because I I can relate to so much of what you're saying. I didn't want to feed them. I didn't want to formula feed them. I wanted to feed them, but nobody would help me. And then the more depressed I got, the more my milk supply dwindled. And the more stressed I got it about it. And the more I pumped and the more I stayed up all night, not sleeping again, the more my milk supply dwindled. So it's a real thing to have to grieve those expectations of the experience that you wanted. And again, for somebody who wanted to be a mom their whole life and worked so hard to become Mm -hmm. a mom you know like I really set my life up for success and we you know tried and did the ovulation and all that stuff like this was not how it was supposed to go and I will continue grieving that probably for the rest of my life and it because it goes through cycles sometimes it looks different sometimes I talk about it and I don't cry like I told you and sometimes I do and that's okay absolutely gosh you listen our stories are so similar in a lot of ways and hearing Mm. you talk, I mean, I don't know if you saw my eyes get red and I got like, I could feel my heart racing because so much of your story is, is something I lived through and it's incredible in a way for me. It's, I, you know, I said to you before we started recording that sharing my infertility journey has always been so cathartic these past few years since my kids have been, Mm. since my kids were born but man, hearing your story right now is so cathartic for me and my postpartum struggles because oh. it's so similar to what I struggled yeah. with. And it's, I just think a lot of people can feel that. And and so I just, just for a w- one second, I want to take a minute and tell you how much I appreciate you sharing that because it's personal. It's hard to share because it's hard to even think about that Mm -hmm. because that grief is real and that that particular grief I can relate to in such a deep way and uh, my hands are tense because I'm like yes you know it's it's the grief that sent me to therapy because Mm -hmm. I had to find a way to come to terms with what happened and what I wanted to happen and that's why the anxiety came because I felt like if I just worked hard or nailed their sleep schedule or did this or did that, that it would somehow erase 
yep. what I had lost. And there is no erasing that. Mm-hmm. There is, there's nothing that's going to change that experience. And so acceptance is a hard road to get to because that means truly coming to terms with the fact that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And there are, there were moments that I've talked about it, you know, over the last two years where I've forgotten certain things that have happened. And then I've talked about it again, or people have asked me questions about it. And I've actually remembered things that I had forgotten because that's what trauma does to the brain. You block out certain memories. Absolutely. And so then, you know, when I retell it, I, I remember hard parts of it. And I remember times that were really, really dark for me. But I wish that I had heard other people talking about it in the way that I talk about it. Yes. Because even though I had the quote educational background, I spent most of my days, you know, wondering what was wrong with me. It's incredible. Well, your story is amazing. And, and I think it's extremely powerful and, um, there's a word I'm, I'm looking for that for some reason isn't coming to me. I think I want to say inspiring <laughs> what you've done to get through this experience. And, and I also just want to echo one thing that you said before I move on. And that is, you know, that, that grief comes in cycles and mm-hmm. grief is something that I think people try to avoid going through and they try to push it out of their mm-hmm. life and try to avoid it. And I understand why, because grief doesn't feel good. No, nobody mm-hmm. enjoys grief. It's not like, oh, this is a fun thing to feel. <laughs> exactly. Right. Come on. But at the same time, I feel like accepting grief and knowing that sometimes grief does take your whole life and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Sometimes you, you know, are living your best life and everything's perfect. You feel great. And then pff, all of a sudden, you're like, wait, what, where am I right now? Where is yeah. my head? Cause it's not where it was 30 seconds ago. Yeah, and absolutely. that's okay. And I think it's so important to try to embrace grief and realize that it's a, a part of being human. It's a part of trauma and grieving situations is equally important to grieving people. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and and that's just something that I feel very strongly about. So I'm so 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 glad that you shared that and and that you shared it in the way that you did. So, oh, thank you. Um, I do want to ask you one one thing before we move on to my my silly mm-hmm. fun questions before we completely change <laughs> the the beat here of the conversation. But I want to talk for a minute. I know we talked about this um, briefly earlier today um, about your focus as a coach, which is so exciting to me because you have changed focus. I know that you used to specialize in relationship coaching, even career coaching, which I think is so incredible, Mm -hmm. but you've shifted your focus to really focusing. I'm trying to say focusing. (laughs) I don't, I I made up a new word, everybody. I love (laughs) it. I have a tendency to do that. (laughs) I make up a lot of words, um, focusing, um, on, working with moms and stepmoms. And I am, yeah. I'm, you know, we talked briefly about this before, I think before we started recording, but I really want to hear about that for a minute, because I think I kind of want to hear two parts. I kind of want to hear 
what sort of motivated you to shift your focus and then, you know, why you clearly, and I love it, are passionate about this um, newer focus, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I was saying to you that it came about really serendipitously. And so most people would ask me a little bit about me. when they would either meet me or if I was doing a podcast. And of course, I always said that I was a mother Mm -hmm. um, and a stepmother. And then some other questions would come about and I would kind of glaze over, you know, what had happened with the twins or if anybody asked like, oh my God, that sounds insane to be a Mm -hmm. twin mom. I would just not really address it. And through that not addressing it, I knew that I had some more work to do around it because I really avoided ever talking about it. And it was very much the same with when anyone asked me about being a stepmom. Mm-hmm. Now, the work that I've done as a mom and as a woman has been like transformative over the last two and a half years. And I only hope that I can support other women in walking a similar path should they choose to, because I don't feel guilt and shame in the same way that I did when the girls were born, you know, about prioritizing myself or taking a shower or going mm-hmm. to the bathroom. I live a life that models for my children that I actually come first, because if I go down, this whole ship is going down Mm -hmm. and my children need to know what healthy boundaries look like. And if I don't model that for them, you know, I don't know who's going to. Right. And so through that, I am the, the best version of myself. I'm the most proud that I've been in my 33 years of life. Mm hmm. And I love talking about that. I love supporting other women to prioritize their needs and to find balance in their lives and to know what it feels like to, yeah, you know, wear the mom hat, but also wear whatever freaking hat they want to wear. Like I am a mother and I always identify as a mother, but I'm a lot of other things too. Um, And through my stepmom journey, I had a very similar path in that I had to start saying no, which has never been an easy thing for me. Mm-hmm. I had to learn how to show up authentically because when I met my partner, I wanted to be like the quote, you know, perfect stepmom. And I wanted to be seen as a good mom. I didn't have biological children of my own at the time. And so that meant saying yes to a lot of things that I didn't want to do. And it meant putting myself last and it meant completely depleting myself and never putting my knees first. And not even actually really remembering what I enjoyed because I never took the time for myself. Right. And so I've had to like re-find out who I am. And there's no greater journey than putting yourself first and finding out who you are again in this new role. Cause I'll never be the same. You know, I'm I'm not the same. I'm never going to be the person I was before I had kids and that's okay. I'm a way better version of myself now. Totally. Because who I was when I was 29, when I got pregnant, was the person that said yes to everything, even when I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, it's funny where life takes you. It's funny the things you get kind of put on the spot to talk about and <laughs> the walls really? that you have to break down when you feel uncomfortable talking about it. And because I talk about it now for a living, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've had to work through that shame. And I'm so thankful that I did because especially as a stepmom, you know, we are always appreciated until we're not, and we're good enough until we're not, and we're allowed to help when it's convenient, but not allowed to help if it's overstepping. And so there's a lot of other women that 
are going through that and feel that and they need somebody else to almost give them permission to feel it. And so, hey, if I need to be that person, I'm happy to do it. I I love that. And I think that's really, I'm going to use a word I overuse, but that's just me. I think that's really special. I do because it's important. We all, you know, I I think we all need support in different ways. And being a stepmom is not easy. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. And everything that you just said, well, it makes sense. And it's, it's, I can't think of what I'm trying to say. I don't know if that happens to you. Happens to me. I get get too many thoughts in my head and I'm like, (laughs) why can't I make a sentence? (laughs) But what I'm attempting to get at is that I think that that's such an important, important role that you've taken on. And I, I just think that's incredible. So I I love that you've just shared that in the way that you did. And I think it's just so wonderful that you can be that support for people who need that. It's not easy to, to be a step parent because, well, because of everything you just said, you know, it's almost like it is a very unique role. It's an important role, but it's Mm. a very unique role. And it's, it's really wonderful to be able to be that person for other people in a similar boat. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people wonder like what, do you do for a stepmom? You know, is it you just getting together with somebody to complain about the ex? And it's like, no, that's not what it is. It's about really clarifying your values as a stepmom, you know, who you want to be and how do we get you to that person? And I do the same thing for women and mothers. And I was doing the same thing when I was doing, you know, relationship and career coaching, because we all operate from a set of values. And when we feel anxious and stressed or depressed it's because we've gotten away from those values right and so it's it's really a concept that translates to every aspect of your life and so there's a term that's going around right now that's getting popularity which is called disengaging and it's Mm -hmm. not about saying oh I don't care I'm not involved because you're not my child it's about disengaging from things that do not bring you joy, do not bring you peace are a source of conflict. So yeah, that might mean disengaging from conversations with the ex, if that is a source of stress for you, Mm -hmm. or that might mean taking a step back and learning what's actually important to you and what hill you're prepared to die on. Cause I was dying on a lot of hills that weren't actually that important to me, Mm -hmm. but it was about, um, making myself important, but importance is not actually a value for me. Right. So when I clarified that, I, I was it. able to be like, what am I doing here? Like, yes. I don't actually need to die on a hill about importance because that's not even actually important to me. Right, right, right. But um, solitude is important to me. Control is important to mm-hmm. me. Adventure is important. Like, how do I create that life for myself? Yes. So God. Man, Megan, I love it. I'm so excited. You just, you, you're so I'm like, what did I even just say there? I don't know, but she it, gets me, man. It made sense to me. It, <laughs> it really made sense to me because I think it's really, I love how you explained that, you know, what hill do you want to die on? Like, I never really thought about it that way. And man, you're right. Like what is important to you? Think about the things that are important and what's not important. And then you can yeah. figure it out. 
Man. Like when people are hung up on, you know, the, the dishes or if their stepkids help out with that, it's like, okay, so does that align with any of your core values? And for some people it does, but for mm-hmm. some people it doesn't. So right. it's like, so why are you putting that stick in the mud? Right. Like, what is that really about? Exactly. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. how I kind of coach Let's people to that. figure out the stuff that they already know. Right. That's why I say it's not about me pointing out stuff to them all the time. They get there on their own. I'm just kind of like drawing it out of them. But when I ask certain questions around the decisions they make, you can see the wheels turn. And they're like, yeah, yeah why, why am I stuck on that? Hmm. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think that's really great. And I'm really excited about that. Okay. Now let's have some fun for a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you two questions. They are different. They are similar. You can have different answers or the same answers. I've had people answer the same. I've had people get super creative with the second one. Mm-hmm. You can get as creative or not creative as you want. Okay. It's all you. So I'm going to give you questions in a certain order, but you can answer them in either order. First question is, who are the three most inspirational or influential people in your life? These don't have to be people who are part of your life. It can be people who have just impacted your life. So you don't have to actually wow. know them. Okay. 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 I don't know if I worded that well before. So okay. that's the first one. Okay. The second one is a little more lighthearted. Um, and this <laughs> one you can get as creative as you want. It is. If you could have drinks or a dinner party or a walk on the beach, wh- whatever floats your boat with three people. Three. Oh my gosh. Okay. I like the number three. That's my lucky number. Yeah. Um, these People, I'm putting it in quotes for a reason, can be dead or alive, fictional or real. You can know them. You cannot know them. They could be relatives. They can be not human. They can be spirits. They can, I've had okay. people invite spirits to this, you know, soiree. Ghosts, characters in a book, Muppets. They could be historical figures. They can be your parents. They can be your children. They can be insects. I say that because wow. I invited an insect to my party when I asked myself this question. I'm a weirdo. That's so amazing. it's really broad, but it, I think it makes it more fun. And of course it's more like torture that way, which is fun. Mm-hmm. To me too. <laughs> so <laughs> take your time, answer in any order that you would like and go. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you no said pressure. three most influential people. Yeah. Holy man. Okay. Well, know, first and foremost, my mom. Okay. I have the best mom in the world. She's like the strongest human I've ever, ever met. Most selfless awesome. person ever. Yeah. I'm so blessed. Um, Gabor Mate. Okay. You listen to his stuff, but yeah, super influential just in my work and the way that he views um, mental health and addictions for sure. Okay. Um, and then I'll just say maybe like Brene Brown. I listen to a lot of Brene Brown and she yes. really lights me up. Yeah. She's a good one. I mean, and, they're all good, whatever. They're yeah. <laughs> and then three people that I could have dinner with. Is that what you said? Dinner. Oh my gosh. Okay. Drinks. I've had people shuck corn on a front porch. <laughs> okay. So it's whatever um, kind of gathering that works for you. Yeah. So I'll say my dad. So my dad died when I was 24. Okay. I'd love to, you know, have a moment with him again. Um, Tupac. Oh, good one. Okay. And Jesus. Good one. Also, I mean, I say good one, and it 
it's such a, <laughs> a, an, a subjective question. I'm like, you imagine that the- dinner party, Tupac that would be and Jesus. Really interesting. I would be a fly on the wall at that dinner party and be like, what do they, they have could to get down? Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I love it. I need it. to know why I'm here. So that's what I need to ask Jesus. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I, I love asking people that question. It's a question that came to me one day and I thought, I need to know how other people would answer this because I don't even know how I would answer it. And then I asked myself, and I think about it after now I'm probably change my answer. And that's what makes it really fun. (laughs) Actually, what's really, really funny is the very first person I ever interviewed on my podcast, I interviewed her a second time and I interviewed her, uh, about something, just a completely different topic than the first time I interviewed her. And I remember she said to me, I wonder if my answers are going to be the same as they were the first time. And some of them were, and some of them weren't her influential people were exactly the same. Really? But her dinner party was different, if I remember correctly. I'll have to listen. It was a couple I'll episodes ago. I'll probably make ago. some changes, but, but I, it's I just such a fun thing to think about. It I, is. I, yeah. I decided um, about a year ago, it was last May, I decided I was going to interview myself for my podcast. It was a really weird episode. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I had fun. I should do it again. Um, and I asked myself these questions and I didn't prepare myself. I just asked myself spur the moment to see what would happen. And I was like, uh... And I, I invited a dragonfly to my dinner party because I love dragonflies. It's a whole thing. I invited, you know, it was just, I don't remember who else I invited. I think I invited my great grandfather because I never met him, Aww. but I'm supposedly a lot like him. But I just think it's really fun to go like deep inside your head and get creative and think, if I could do anything, anything. Yeah. what would I do? And I've had so many people be like, okay, well, I'm going to lump these four people into one, if that's okay. And I'm like, hey, it's your dinner party. Sure, whatever. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't know those were the rules. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm very flexible with my rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just, I don't know. I think it's a really fun way to get to know yourself, but it also gives people a nice little glimpse into who you are who I and, am. and what's important to you. And yeah. I don't know, it's just really... I, like I uh, fun with it. did a podcast where someone was asking me what I was listening to and it was like such a mash. I think I was listening to Adele's new CD at the same time. So I was mm-hmm. like crying and finishing that and then was going into nineties R and B. So then I was going from like X, a uh, weeping mess to now like invincible gangster. So oh, man, <laughs> let me tell you, I get that. I'm a child of the eighties, right? I was born in 1980. So I've got yeah for me my range goes like 70s 80s disco like 70s like classic (laughs) rock then I'm into the disco and funk era in like the late uh, 70s early 80s then I'm into like really obnoxious 80s pop music and then the great 80s rap music which I loved and the 90s hip-hop I loved and then you got all the crazy alternative stuff and then I get into just I mean it's like this whole crazy range and I'm like If anyone ever were to listen to like my workout mix, which that's me too, though, I don't like, work out very often, like but when everything. I do, it's all over the place, right? Do. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's hilarious. I love it. I love it. All right. Megan, last question for you. And this is the easiest question you'll answer all day. Okay. Where can our listeners connect with you? How oh, they find yeah. You? So they can hop onto my website, MeganMcLarenCoaching.com, or I really love hanging out on Instagram, MeganMcLarenCoach, and that's where you hear me um, really like giving a glimpse into my day-to-day life, talking about what's going on with me, what's going on with my kids, just shedding some light on what it means to be kind of a modern mom. And that means that I have defined it for myself. People are wondering what I mean by that. 
I've marched to the beat of my own drum. So you'll see me make a five-star meal one night. And the next night you'll see me give my kids chicken nuggets. And I feel really damn good about it. So come hang out with me there. Yes. Awesome. (laughs) We will come hang out with you there. I love it. Megan, I just want to take a second and thank you so incredibly much for taking the time out of your busy, busy, because you have a very busy schedule to talk with me, to hang out with me, answer my silly questions. And more than that, to share such a vulnerable, a beautiful story that I think can help so many people and that can change lives because that's what you do every day is you change lives. And that is something really special. So thank you so much. For wow. Well, thank you. The honor was mine. This was amazing. I loved talking with you and I hope we can catch up again because we have that twin mama connection. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do.